0: All right, I have one more announcement before I go into the episode. I know these can be super annoying, but this is not a paid advertisement. This is actually about one of my projects. I made a feature film called Fractals, and guess what? It is now available for streaming. Just visit my website, ericnorcross.com. Look for the movie Fractals, and there will be a list of platforms where you can stream it. Thanks. Thanks. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I am talking about independent filmmaking and my 20 tips for indie filmmakers looking to make their movie on an out-of-pocket budget or a shoestring budget. This series started on TikTok and eventually migrated over to Instagram. And it's kind of on both platforms at this point, but I thought I would take the 20 tips that I created, and bring them to one podcast episode so you can just listen to it and hear what I have to say. All these tips are rooted in my experience as a filmmaker over the past 20 years. I can only speak from my experience, and so if you disagree with some of it or if you think I did it wrong, well, know that I take a lifelong learning approach to how I live my life and how I do my project, so even though I learned some really hard lessons previously, it doesn't mean I would repeat those mistakes now. Some of these tips are derived from some of the hardest lessons I've had to learn. So here we go. My first tip is if you are on an out-of-pocket budget or if you are financially responsible for your production in any kind of way, think twice before signing a signatory agreement with SAG-AFTRA or any of the unions that work in the film industry. IATSE is another one. Uh, I don't have experience directly with IATSE, but I I did direct an independent film that was under the SAG-AFTRA ultra-low-budget contract some years back. And when you sign an agreement with a sag after, you essentially give them what's called jurisdiction over your production, meaning they tell you when to go and how to go. That means all that outside the box thinking that you've been doing to develop a way to affordably execute your production may not apply. They might tell you, well, you can't do this, this, or this because it's unsafe, or you can't do this, or you can't work with these people because of this or that or whatever. I had all those problems. And the other thing too is, Back When I signed with them They had this program Called SAG Indie I don't know if they still have it But It's these workshops Where you are basically taught How to be a signatory Of SAG After They weren't straightforward And honest with those either You see the thing is Is When you Sign an agreement with them You essentially Are You become an On the books filmmaker And when you're on the books With anything Any endeavor You're essentially Going to pay more By being On the books You are inevitably Going to be More expensive. Now, I remember with this particular project that I'm talking about, I put out a casting call, right? When I put the casting call out, I put it as a non union production. And every time I've done that, I always get actors who are part of SAG AFTRA who say, well, why don't you just make it a union production? Why? Why not? It's just a little bit of paperwork. I'm gonna tell you right now, it's not just a little bit of paperwork, okay? When you become an on-the-books filmmaker, you're not only paying into their pension fund, which is all they care about. They don't even care about your movie or whether or not you even finish your movie. They just want you to pay into their pension fund. But you also are paying taxes on all the money that you're paying to your actors. So this isn't even a question of paying your actors or not paying your actors. I actually believe in paying your actors. This is a, this is about like all those additional funds that aren't actually going to your movie the government and all these other organizations like sag after, start taking taking money out of each transaction. Uh, you cannot afford to be somebody's employer, okay? You're an out-of-pocket independent filmmaker. So paying, paying taxes on every single little transaction is going to bank, bankrupt your production before day three. It just is what it is. The other thing too is you're also expected to report to the labor department to the IRS, to your state taxation office, whoever they may be, like you are legit a legitimate on-the-books business, so unless you have a lot of financing, a lawyer, and an accountant, it's not worth it. You're better off putting a casting call out for non-union actors and making arrangements with them commensurate to what you can afford. Usually, I say, hey, this is art for the sake of it, but I'll give you an honorarium. Like, that's the best way to go about it. Because if it's art for the sake of it, then it's art for the sake of it. The stakes are low, the expectations are low, and you don't have to worry about all that stuff that you should not be worrying about as an out-of-pocket independent filmmaker. Anyway, so that's my first tip. And I know if, if you're a union actor out there, this isn't like me trying to shoot down your organization. I get that if you're working for one of the top five studios and they can afford all of the bells and whistles of your contract, they should be doing it 100%. If I was directing a film for Warner Brothers or Paramount, I would actually insist on it because it makes sense from a professional standpoint. But I'm talking about when I'm making a movie out of my own bank account, if I'm paying, paying out of Venmo or, you know, cobbling together money over a couple of years of working just to make my my passion project. These are the kinds of films I'm talking about. They don't need to be SAG after and they shouldn't be. Thanks. So let's move on to the next one. Indie filmmaking tip number two, morale as a line item in your budget. You gotta be very careful about the money you spend keeping your crew happy. For example, hot meals. It's okay to have a hot meal once in a while. When I'm working on a set, occasionally, especially on the longer, tougher days, a hot meal can make all the difference in the world. But if your crew expects a hot meal every single day, the impact that that will have on them and the meaning it will have towards them will start to diminish. And suddenly you're just burning money with and and essentially that hot meal that they're getting every day isn't changing anything. It's not making them happy. It's not keeping them happy. It's essentially just something that they come to expect and that's it. What I like to do is... I decide, well, if it's it's a half day or a long day or if it's an extra long day. So a half day would be like if we show up at 10, but we're out by one. That's a half day or even a quarter day, really. And that's basically snacks. I might bring some pop, pop chips, popcorners, whatever they call them, and some bottles of water, and we just power through those two or three hours, and that's that. If it's a full day where they're showing up at 9 and we're leaving at like 4 or 5, that's a full day that's when we bring in pizza <laughs> or sometimes sandwiches. And it sometimes they'll be made. Sometimes they'll be ordered depending on where we are. If we're shooting in the city, they'll be ordered. If we're shooting in the boonies, we will bring lunch with us. It'll be like a picnic. If it's an extra long day, that's when I go for something better. Maybe we'll get Chinese takeout or something like that. But it really depends on how difficult the day is. And... That's it. That's how that's how I've always pushed forward with my productions since twenty thirteen and it works. But you just gotta be really careful because I once had a cinematographer who it was in his contract that we would supply him with his own source of coffee. And it had to either come from Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts. And every day if somebody didn't have that box of Joe or, you know, a big thing of Starbucks You know, I think it was like four venti Starbucks in one of those handheld hand containers. Like he expected that every day and it ended up destroying our budget each day because like we were so tight on money to get this guy his own coffee because he didn't want to drink the house coffee. It was just ridiculous. It wasn't worth it. So and ultimately he was always angry with the production anyway in some other way. So it's not like it even worked towards making him happy or feeling valued he was the cinematographer who came with a great camera and he and for all his faults like he was super talented and i i just wish that i hadn't given into that and that maybe he was a little more capable of understanding that this wasn't out of pocket indie film and we really shouldn't have had to negotiate that at all so tip number three make films with your friends This is really important. This is something that I try to regularly practice. It gets harder the older you get. I'm 41 now. going to be 42 in June. And a lot of the friends I used to make films with aren't making films. They're not even remotely interested in it. They've all started adulting and moving on. And they feel like a part of adulting is that they don't do stuff like this anymore, at least if it's not in a professional context. I don't believe that at all. I, I think that As a filmmaker who's interested in growing and understanding my craft, I have to be able to keep making movies outside of the professional environment. So I'm always reaching out to people in my network, in my social circle, be like, hey, do you want to make a movie together? We'll keep it low stakes. Um, I don't really have a script. Maybe I do. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I just have an outline. Let's experiment. Uh, As a lifelong learner, it's an important part of my art practice, just keep making films with my friends keep things light and also to remind myself why I do it I mean I really started doing this because it opened my social life up in a way that I hadn't experienced before I was in high school I didn't have friends for most of my childhood I didn't have friends and then when I started making films a lot of the the other kids in my town came out of the woodwork and were like hey can we make a film with you And then I could reach out to other people and like, hey, I'm making a film. Do you want to be involved? And all these people who weren't involved started hanging out with me and started talking with me because we were all making films together. That's why I started it. That's why I love it. And that's why I continue to do it. It's all about the community. And so, yeah, as a a creative, uh, I don't look at it as just a profession. It is a way of life. And it's so much fun. So keep making films with your friends, even after you've quote unquote made it, if you do make it film school, should you go to film school? Should you not go to film school? I went to film school. This is my fourth tip. No one needs film school. Here's why. When I went to film school, my tuition for a one year film foundation course at the Vancouver film school was about 20,000 American dollars. Back then the US dollar was much more than the Canadian dollar. Canadians were also spending $20,000 in tuition. Only that was the Canadian dollars, which means it was more expensive for me to go to the same film school than it was for Canadians. And I found that a little off-putting, and that turned me off right away. But ultimately, as an American attending film school abroad, um, I don't feel like I got the education I would have gotten had I gone to an American film school simply because a lot of the positions on these sets were given to Canadians. So if I wanted to be a cinematographer on one of our class films, I was less likely to be chosen simply because I was an American. The only American that got the cinematographer jobs, at least in my class, was somebody who was already shooting Super 8. And I didn't have access to a Super 8 camera or money for, to develop Super 8 films, so I was obviously not positioned for that. If I wanted to be a director, I had to be a Canadian. I don't think any Americans got chosen as directors either. And uh, of course, I'm talking about these class projects where everybody takes a position and you learn it while you're making a short film. Uh, I submitted a screenplay to be produced as one of the class projects and immediately got shot down because my depiction of police was too brutal. Oh, police aren't this brutal. I'm like, bitch, you don't know fucking America. Like... This is an exact depiction of police in America. And they didn't understand that. And and I, I think from the Canadian perspective, maybe it seemed unrealistic, but in retrospect, it was actually really accurate. And then disenchanted, I ultimately resigned myself to just producing my own experimental films using an analog video camcorder that I would check out of the equipment room twice a week. And so the most valuable content that I I created in film school wasn't even our film school projects, it was just the stuff that nobody else at the film school knows I created. What I would have rather done in retrospect is taken the $20,000 in tuition and used it to make a feature film that I would have then been able to submit to festivals and eventually get distribution for. I wish I had done that. That's what Kevin Smith did. And it worked. I don't know if you guys know that, but he went to the same film school I went to, realized it wasn't for him, and dropped out halfway through. He took the tuition that he got back from that, from having dropped out, from having dropped out, and he ended up using it to finance clerks, at least a portion of it. So yeah, I would say, you know, there are enough tutorials on YouTube about filmmaking. Everything you need to know about filmmaking is there. Everything you need to know about all the equipment and the programs, that's all available for free. So I would say just use your resources to make your first movie and if you need to know anything, you can reach out to directly through my web you can reach out direct to me through my website and I'm happy to answer your questions, but almost every single question you have to ask about filmmaking is already answered and it's available on YouTube. So That's it. Avoid film school at all costs. It's just not worth the money. And for the film schools out there who might want to dispute this, uh, Scorsese didn't go to film school, okay? A lot of the great filmmakers that we talk about day in and day out did not go to film school. So it's not like you need it. Now, I I will add one more thing to this, this particular tip. If you're looking to just network and get into like a position on a professional set. Oh, I just want to get a PA, PA work or something like that. Maybe film school would be, would be right for you. But my advice is geared towards the independent filmmaker looking to make movies themselves. You don't need film school for that. If you're looking just to be a grunt on the set, then sure, go. I, I mean, my nickname for the Vancouver Film School was the Vancouver Grip School. Because that's essentially what they were teaching and they didn't convey that in their literature back then, but that's essentially what it is. And so uh, if you're looking to create an art practice for yourself as a filmmaker, maybe go to art school instead. Just some mixed media program where you can do whatever. Uh, But film school, forget about it. Let's move on. Financing. Everybody wants to talk about financing. I recently had somebody on my podcast who's, they were talking about wanting to get into independent film and they asked if they could stay in touch with me if they had questions. I said, sure, sure. And after the show ended, I kind of made a bet with myself where I'm like, I bet their first question is going to be about money. Several months later, this person reaches out to me and they're like, can I ask you about financing? (laughs) And so... You, you just can't escape it. That's always the first question on so many people's minds. How do you finance your movie? You know, years ago, in around 2012, I interviewed Matt Harrison. He's the director of Rhythm Thief. Uh, it was one of the movies that won Sundance in the 1990s. One of my favorite movies. It's a movie that I always watch before going into production of a film just because it's so inspirational, uh, at least to me as a creative. And I asked Matt about money because... He, you know, he, he won the award that all us American filmmakers want to win the jury prize at Sundance. <laughs> well, he won the special jury prize at Sundance cause they wanted the, like, they were so divided on who to give it to. They just like gave it to like two different people. But he, he, he said something that disenchanted me then, but it's just obvious now. And that's that no matter how many awards you win, no matter how much money your movies make at box office, you're always going to be in a position where you're trying to find funding for the next one. And you're not, you're never going to be able to know where it's coming from until it comes. And that, that was really disenchanting initially, but accepting it really just allowed me to push forward as a, f- a filmmaker, pursuing the art life for myself, because If that's normal for even the most successful filmmakers, then okay, so be it. So yeah, wherever your money comes from is where your money's coming from. And so for me personally, a lot of it is just, I do a lot of freelance jobs and I take a portion of the money that I make and I put it away and I save up for my projects. And I slowly build out my projects so that by the time I'm ready to shoot, all my props are built by me, all my set pieces are built by me. And... I have a plan. And if I do it that way, if I go slow, then and and I do as much myself as I as possible, then the little bit of money I've managed to save up will go a long way to just making sure we get through principal photography. Most of that just goes to actors and locations anyway, and sometimes travel and food. Like I I don't really spend money on anything else because I already have all my equipment and I do all of my set builds and my prop builds myself, so That's how I finance. It's literally out of pocket, and that's why there's so much time between when I start and finish films. Tip number six, writing. So I write a lot of screenplays meant for submission, and then I also write a lot of screenplays meant for production. The screenplays I write for submission tend to be formulaic. I follow the three-act structure. I follow the character arcs that you would typically find in a studio picture or a TV movie and those are the ones I'll often submit to places to be hired as a screenwriter or to try and get financing outside of the independent way of making movies and although none of that has ever worked I continue to write them because I have the stories in me and and I need a way of getting them out but then there are the screenplays that I write for production and these ones are written in a way where they are producible by me entirely uh, and so sometimes they'll just be outlines with ideas, and then I'll work with actors to figure out what those ideas would look like on film. And other times they're just they're they're specific. They're they're in screenplay format, and they've got all the dialogue and all that. But all the locations are locations I already have access to. All the props are props that I already have. Uh, all the all the characters are generic. So I'll often write characters by positions within society or an enterprise. So if my screenplay takes place at an office, we'll have the boss, we'll have the intern, we'll have intern number two, we'll have the boss's assistant, and then we'll have, you know, all the all the other underlings and whoever the main characters are ends up being the main characters. But in the screenplay, it'll just be their position. Because as an out-of-pocket independent filmmaker, I don't know who I'm gonna get auditioning. And who's going to be perfect for the role? So case in point, some years back, I was getting a lot of submissions for actresses. But my screenplays were all written with men in mind for some of the characters. And one of the actresses that auditioned was perfect for the role. So when I retooled the script for production, uh, I just put in in inspector because that was the position they had in society. They were an inspector. And their colleague was Inspector 2. And then there, I think there was an Inspector 3 and 4 as well. And they were side characters. And so if you don't know what you're going to get in terms of people, just think about it in terms of their positions in society and then write for what you have, write for what you can do. If you were making a movie this afternoon, what would you be able to do straight away? So that's... That's my advice. Write, write the screenplays you want to produce with money, but then also write the screenplays that you can produce tomorrow. Tip number seven. Don't start spending money because once you start, you, you won't be able to stop. That means if, if you're bringing on outsiders to help you, make sure they understand that this is art for the sake of it, that they're not going to necessarily be paid crew And if you negotiate an honorarium, make sure that they know that that honorarium is a one-time thing because it's really easy for people to be suddenly okay with getting paid out of your pocket. Um, I remember I've had multiple productions, especially in my 20s, where I said I'd pay people this one time and then the following week. still producing the movie and they're like you know what i could i could really use another deposit for this week Uh, otherwise i won't be able to come back and they know that i have to 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 come up with it because i've already started making the movie with them and it became dependent on them and and they became dependent on that paycheck and so don't start spending money to solve all your problems and this goes for like really any problem if you don't find an outside of the box way of solving your problems then you're, you're, you're never going to be able to wind down that knee-jerk response to just buy your way out of the problem. Uh, it's easy to buy your way out of the problem when you're a big budget. And if you're a professional production, you probably should most of the time buy your way out of a problem because you got a lot of people who are essentially getting paid to be on set, and you want to keep them on set as little as possible. So, But when you're an out-of-pocket indie filmmaker, you can't really afford to buy your way out of every problem. So be inventive and surround yourself with inventive people who think outside of the box in terms of their problem-solving abilities. Uh, On that sag after production I told you about, I had a crew who was very incapable of that. Everything, every solution that they had was the quote-unquote tried-and-true professional method for making films. Well, it just so happens that the tried-and-true professional method for making films is also the most expensive, So they weren't actually the right crew for me. And this is why I started retooling my production process so that whether I start with a crew or not, I ultimately can finish my own movies. So my movie Fractals and Death and Life, those were the two feature films that I made afterwards. Those were done entirely by me without a crew. And I designed my whole creative process to not have a crew. As much as I would love to have a crew, though, I have yet to find people can think outside of the box at the level I need them to, to solve the problems that arise in my productions. So think outside the box and surround yourself with people who do think outside the box. Tip number eight, don't wait for the right camera to make your movie. For years, I avoided making my passion projects because I never had the right camera. You know, I started out on VHS cameras and then mini DV and analog video camcorders. And, of course, it's hard to make a feature film on technology like that. And I was like, I got I to gotta shoot on 16 millimeter or 35 millimeter, but I could never afford it. I came from a working class family off the coast of Maine. We did not have the money for a real film format. And then when digital cinema came out, it took years for me to be able to acquire something that was even remotely affordable. And then after I finally got my hands on a red and eventually transitioned to just exclusively shooting on black magic cameras, all those passion projects I was waiting to do, I was no longer interested in doing them. And some of them were very specific to my life back then. And I no longer lived where I was living and I no longer no longer know the people that I knew and therefore didn't have access to some of the locations or other types of resources that I would need to make those projects. So I, I wish I had come up with alternative ways to make these movies, and but I just didn't. I thought it was all about waiting for access to the best cameras. So now that I have access to really good equipment and I have a professional studio capability at this point, I have other projects that I'm doing and would and would rather do at this point But there's that part of me that regrets not making those movies when I was most passionate about them. So whatever you're passionate about now, find a way to make that movie any which way you can. Your cell phone can do so much better than the cameras I used to have access to. Keep that in mind. If I had access to the cell phone I have now back in 2000, I would have made those movies. Invest in sound. This is your ninth tip. For God's sake, invest in sound. I didn't for so long. I just used the onboard mic of whatever camcorder I was shooting on, and that was that. Uh, I wish I had invested more in sound, and that even if I didn't own a camera at any point, that I always own my own sound, because it does make a world of difference to have good sound. When you're on set and you're recording, you make sure that you're getting the cleanest audio possible. You will not regret it again. Go to my TikTok and watch my video on tip number nine, sound. Because in that video, I actually describe, I have different mics and I give you like samples of what each mic sounds like <laughs> when recording. So I give you the, the cell phone mic, then I give you the mic that I'm talking into right now, and then I give you the onboard XY mic for a Zoom recorder and you can hear all the differences and it makes a world of difference. So future-proof the sound mix of your movie and just make sure that all your raw sound is as good as everything else that you're creating in the moment, if not better. Tip number 10, plan for what you need to do, not for people to do it. So you need to accomplish things on set You don't necessarily need other people to do it. So don't plan for a cinematographer. Have a plan for great cinematography. Don't plan for a sound mixer. Have a plan for having great sound, so on and so forth. Because even if you start off with a crew, you might not necessarily be able to retain them. Back in 2013, I had a crew, as I said, but they were very unhappy and they didn't click well with my production process. And... Some of them ended up quitting partway through the shoot to go on to different shoots because, you know, I think somebody got offered one of the Captain America movies and then another person got offered a commercial or a better paying short film. So you can never really depend on people to stick around when you're on an out of pocket or shoestring budget, especially if they get an offer for more money, money talks and crew walks. So plan to have certain things and then also have a redundancy to your plan. So if you're planning cinematography with the that Blackmagic 6K resolution camera, great, great camera, but there are instances where it burns out and your camera burns out, have a backup plan. I always have a backup plan now. I didn't always because I didn't have the resources to, but over the years I made sure to integrate into my my capabilities the ability to have a backup plan. So have a crewless plan and a backup plan from a technological standpoint. Plan for what you need, not who you need. Tip number 11, film festivals. So I've been in film festivals. I've won awards at film festivals. And I am a firm believer at the age of 41 that they are all scams designed to take money from independent filmmakers who can't really afford it. Think about all the submission fees. Think about all the... Types of films they take in And the types of films that are getting submitted So many out-of-pocket indie films are submitted to film festivals But you never really see them at film festivals Yet they're happy to take the submission fee from the filmmakers That to me is so shady It's a system that really needs to be destroyed and made illegal And I don't know what to do about it I don't have the power to do anything about it I spent years in the film festival circuit. I spent years volunteering in the film festival circuit, trying to change things. But ultimately, when you have all that money coming in at the willingness of the submitter, film festival programmers and film festival directors, they're just not going to give a shit about how shady it is. It's a lot of money. I think I calculated one of the major film festivals at nearing nearly a million dollars in just submission fees alone, plus all of their sponsorships. So it's, it's really just... A money tree for a lot of these organizations and even the smaller festivals that are only getting in a little more than a thousand submissions per season think about that 25 times a thousand that's the early bird submission the average early bird submission fee and then the regular submission be on a and then the regular submission fee on average is about 60 to 75 dollars multiply 75 by a thousand the late or extended deadline submission fees are 150 to 200 sometimes. Multiply that by 1000 and tell me that film festivals aren't scams. Avoid them at all costs. Here's what you should be doing. You should be thinking about a marketing plan and a distribution plan and in investing in that. So whatever money you would spend on submitting to film festivals, put it towards a solid promotion and distribution plan. Because you can distribute your films on your own accord now, thanks to aggregators like FilmHub. The problem is you've got to drive people to see it. And, and if you were at a film festival, it would be the same thing anyway. Film festivals do not spend money to promote independent films that nobody's ever heard of, starring people nobody's ever heard of. So even if you get into a film festival, you're still going to be spending money promoting it. You're still going to be out there handing out flyers trying to get butts into the seats of your screening. I've seen so many independent films at various film festivals that had nobody in the seats except for the cast and crew. So if you're going to pay for the promotion and marketing anyway, you might as well just go straight to distribution. The goal is to find your audience. And there's no better way to find your audience than to put your film in the market. So that's my advice. Tip number 12, freelancing as a videographer or for hire filmmaker between your personal projects. So it seems like almost everybody who graduates from film school or decides to become a filmmaker. We all have this super original idea to become a freelancer to help finance our personal passion projects. And it's a really nice idea, but practically it can be really soul sucking because first off, it's really hard to get clients if that's not all you do. If you're not just a freelancer, There are going to be people who are, who are more likely to get the more meaningful work. Also, it's really hard to find clients that, so unless you have an agent that has connections to the companies that actually have meaningful projects that pay good wages, it's going to be really difficult to find work and and ultimately really expensive. For example, to get work here in New York, A lot of freelancers have to have profiles on places like Production Hub or Mandy.com where you have to pay to have your profile listed and then you have to pay to submit to certain jobs, especially freelance jobs. And a lot of it isn't really affordable. And even if you have the disposable finances to do that, it doesn't necessarily mean you're applying to a job that's real. I remember wasting my credits on Production Hub to apply for a job. And they reached out to me and they asked me lots of questions. They asked me for a quote. And I got back to them. And then like three days later, the job was removed. And then three days after that, it was put back up as we're looking for students actually, which is code for we don't really want to pay for this, or we don't want to pay a living wage for whatever this is. And I basically burned credits for people who weren't serious and that sucks. And But also the fact that as freelancers working in this field, the fact that we even have to pay to apply for a job is really fucking shady and I hate it and it sucks. And so I would just say if that's part of your plan, have a plan so that it's not overwhelming your life and that it's not disenchanting you because it can be disenchanting. But I have to remind myself that the freelance work I do isn't why I do it; it's how I do it. And so, ultimately, if you can find a source of income that doesn't drain you that way, if you can find a source of income where it doesn't take a lot of time or a lot of uh, brain power, that's ideal because you're making a lot of money, but you're also conserving your neurons for your actual passion projects. And that's what I would recommend. Tip thirteen: Prestige versus production value. Now. A lot of filmmakers feel like they have to add production value to their films that will ultimately bring them prestige. Oh, we shot in this location that nobody's ever shot in before. <laughs> you know, we shot with these people that we know we we've never that nobody's ever had before. Or um, I think a great example of this is Miracle on 34th Street had footage shot of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Uh, which wasn't included in a feature film before, but it was the real parade and it was a scene set during the parade. So, you know, it adds a lot of prestige and production value. But as an out-of-pocket independent filmmaker, you got to be really careful about pursuing that because you might have, let's say you have two locations. One of them is a really great location. It adds prestige, but you only get one day there and It's a specific day and you're really bending over backwards to make that day count and to get everything you need there. But then you have this backup location where you can spend as much time there as you want. You can schedule whoever you want, whenever you want, and you can keep going back there again and again and again to make sure everything you get is right. Guess what? I'm going for that second location because screw prestige, screw production value, I'm going to go for the thing that's going to give me what I need to make the best movie possible, and it's not going to be the most prestigious location. It's going to be the location that I'll always have access to. So you think about that at every facet of your production, right? Think about that in terms of people, locations, props, set pieces. Just whatever makes your life easier as a filmmaker is what you should just go for. You know, it's all about the movie you're making, not the little specific things like that. None of that matters, okay? So just make your life easier. Go for the second location. That's it. Tip number 14, failure. The world is hostile to failure, but failure is an important part of learning. I would say failure is learning. So don't be afraid to fail and don't overjudge yourself. Don't punish yourself for failing. Other people will do that, but screw them. You're allowed to fail. You should fail. Failure is really important. I've learned more, more about failure than I would have liked but I've come out smarter and stronger because of it. So just because the world is hostile to it doesn't make it wrong. Tip number 15, keep making films no matter what. So for years, I'd never owned my own camera. When I started making films in high school, I was just using the high school's cameras. They were VHS camcorders that were meant to train students on how to do news shooting, like documentary shooting for the news. Uh, as I think that the idea was, you, know, you could be hired as your local news correspondent or something like that. But I just decided to use them to start making experimental films and music videos and stuff like that. In film school, I didn't have access to actual film cameras. I only had access to 8mm videotape, which is just like these Sony analog handicams that shoot standard definition on 8mm video. All my personal passion projects and experimental projects prior to 2002 were done in analog. I didn't shoot any digital until my short film, Hero for a Day, which was shot 2002 on MiniDV. Again, it was standard definition. This camera I didn't own either. This was a friend that owned it. His name was Brandon. He was also a producer on that film. And I, although I did buy a MiniDV camcorder in that era afterwards, I never really used it for my own films. I just used it to kind of shoot random stuff because I didn't like the quality and I didn't particularly feel that I was generating anything worthwhile with it. However, when I moved to New York, I didn't make film for two years. And I regret that because I did have that little mini DV camera uh, at first until I sold it. But That's a whole nother story about needing to pay rent and all that. But ultimately, my first New York film was made with a Sony TRV-900, a great mini DV camera, very professional, crisp. It wasn't high definition. It was still standard definition, but it was really crisp standard definition. That was my first New York movie. It was called The Long Island Project. I have a, if you're watching on YouTube, I have a sticker back here (laughs) promoting it. But again, that was a borrowed camera. I did not own that camera. I borrowed it from one of the managers at the Virgin Mega Store where I was employed at the time. And then I got my first real movie camera in 2009. It was an HDV camcorder. It was a Sony, no, it was a Canon XHA1 HDV. So it recorded to DV tape, but it recorded high-definition footage onto DV tape. And to this day, I can't tell you how because I'm not that technical savvy, but that was the first camera where I felt like, oh, I want an actual movie camera where I can create cinema with it. And all of my first festival plays were movies made with that camera. And that was my first camera. So if you think about it, I started making movies in 1998, but I never really owned a viable camera until about 2009. But I kept making movies no matter what. And even through the proliferation of digital cinema technology, I never really got a hold of digital cinema for, for a long time, but I still kept making movies, and I still, kept, I still kept finding a way to make movies. And even today, even though I have digital cinema technology, I don't really have the collaborators I used to have. But that doesn't matter because I still find a way to experiment. I still find stories to tell with what I do have and who I have access to. That's That's it. Just find a way to keep making movies. It's really important that you keep working. Tip number 16 is troublesome actors. How to avoid them and what to do if you end up stuck with one. Well, this tip came out of a production from a few years back where I had developed a science fiction movie for a friend of mine or a former friend at this point. Uh, He had a science fiction fan base. He was in a few IP movies. And he would go to some of these cons. He wouldn't go to the major comic cons, but he would go to some of the smaller cons where he would run into people who showed up just for him. And I'm not going to tell you the movies or the IP or anything like that. But I developed a science fiction movie specifically to have him as a side character. He would have been about three or four days worth of shooting But ultimately, a week before principal photography, he bailed out when he realized just how serious I was getting. You know, I had gotten a crew. I was shooting on a Red. Back then, it was the Red Epic 5K, which was the highest resolution digital cinema camera at the moment. They had just done The Hobbit on that movie. And he's like, oh, I didn't realize it was getting so serious. Like, I usually get paid $10,000 a day to be in movies. And I know you can't afford that. And I really just, I don't want to work you know, for the $100 a day that you're paying everybody. And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, well, that sucks because we've already spent a lot of money getting this production going and we're ready to go next week. And so one of my producers on the show, who was also one of the actors on the project, this person convinced me to do an emergency casting call for the part. And I didn't want to, but I did it anyway because, again, we spent so many resources getting cobbling the production together. And we ended up choosing an actor who was sag He might've been financial core, actually. I don't remember, but ultimately he got the part because he read really well. And, sh- and this person that I was working with, they wanted to do scenes with this person. So I'm just like, all right, whatever. Um, this guy took the role and he ended up just being so troublesome. He ended up, stripping naked on the first day of shooting to protest the fact that we didn't have trucks and trailers. He's like, where are the trailers? And we were shooting in a park in New York City. And I'm like, we can't, we don't have the budget for trailers. Um, it's true. Like, even if I had the budget for trailers, I would question whether they're necessary. (laughs) But he was so pissed off about it that he stripped down naked to his tidy whities. Um, he very slowly put on his makeup and very slowly put his, put his costume on, which was essentially just another set of regular clothes. By the time he was dressed, the police show up and they start questioning us because, well, there have been complaints that, that there was a naked man and all that. And we had, that was the first time on the shoot that we had to show our permits for a while there. I wasn't even asked for permits. Um, But whenever this guy was around, we were always asked for our permits because he was just causing so much trouble for us. Um, We had them, but the fact that we were asked for them was really infuriating and annoying, and it slowed us down. On his second day of shooting, he refused to work until he had a copy of his paperwork, which, you know, when you're an independent filmmaker, you're not just the creative people. You're also the people who have to do all the paperwork. And so we were lagging behind on some of the paperwork because we were just so busy trying to get the other aspects of the production in order. And he showed up to say, he's like, well, I want this form and this form or I'm not working. And so my lead actor, who was also the producer, had to go from Battery Park City all the way to the Upper East Side, get this guy's paperwork, come back and do the scene, which sucks because when they go when they fall into that character, they basically have to stay into that character until we wrap shooting. And this took this person completely out of character into producer mode. And by the time we were shooting, I could tell that this person just wasn't into it anymore. And it was all because this guy couldn't wait till after we were done shooting to get the paperwork that he wanted. He had no sympathy whatsoever for the fact that this was just us that we were alone that we were doing everything he didn't care it was all about me 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 and just making it difficult and finally on the third day I decided to just cut out a bunch of his scenes and I I, I ultimately just decided you know what we can make it work without these scenes so we're just going to do this third day screw the fourth day he's not coming back and so on the third day we shoot some scenes with him and it's relatively okay Um, I'm by this point, every time I see him, I just get angry. (laughs) Like this guy really brought out a lot of rage in me that just the look of him, just seeing his name in print somewhere just made me so bitter. But ultimately we ended up shooting. We ended up avoiding a shoot with him for a fourth day. However, two weeks go by and then I get a call from his lawyer saying that we're in breach of contract with him. And I'm like, what are you? talking about a breach of contract it turned out that when we signed an agreement with him to act because we were in that fog of confusion with that first actor I didn't see that he had checked off a thing on the contract that said that we would guarantee him four days of shooting so we had to pay him for a fourth day of shooting that he didn't shoot uh, because we guaranteed it quote-unquote That's something that I would say goes back to the first tip that I gave you about Sega After. In those contracts, you can guarantee shoot days, but if you guarantee them, you have to pay them, even if they don't shoot those days. I didn't realize that. I didn't understand that. But he treated me as if I was trying to skeeve my way out of it. Um, And as an independent filmmaker, just don't check the boxes. Don't let them check the boxes. Do not guarantee shoot days for anybody. And then also to hit things – To make things even worse for us, the guy decided that, you know what, I'm going to drain them of every bit of money they have so they can't finish the movie. By this point, he just didn't want us to finish the movie because he didn't want to be in our movie. Uh, He didn't like us. He ultimately decided that my style of filmmaking wasn't something he wanted to be affiliated with. So he's doing everything he could to sabotage us and to drain us of our money. And so... He reported us to the labor department, even though we paid every single person on that set, what we were legally required to, he decided to get us audited by labor. And that, you know, it was more of a headache than anything, but still it's, this is a guy that I would not recommend anybody working with. And basically if you're doing a casting call, if you're doing an emergency casting call, crawl your way out of the fog and focus just on that. Don't do it blindly. Don't do it trusting that somebody's going to understand it, understand what you're all about. And make it clear, before I offer this role, sir or ma'am, this is what our production is about. This is what it's going to look like. This is what it's going to feel like. We're not going to have trailers. We're not going to have trucks. We're not going to have, you have to come camera ready, come in your outfit, come with only having to do light makeup touches. But if you don't come camera ready, you're not going to be happy. You make sure that that's exactly what you say to them. And if they don't take the role, great. You know, you've avoided a problem or a problematic person. But if they take the role after having been told that, then and then they cause a problem, you know you're not the problem, they are. Anyway, avoid troublesome actors, be very transparent about what your shoot is, because a lot of them do not tolerate out-of-pocket indie filmmaking and in the way some of us tend to have to operate. So there are plenty of talented actors out there who are familiar with what you're going through and will support you the best way that they can, so you just have to find those people instead. Tip number seventeen: backing up your footage. So what 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 this looks like for me is, um, I basically like will shoot to these Samsung T drives, That's that's what connects to my camera. And throughout the day, if I have a space of time, I'll often duplicate the footage to a little G drive or one of those lacy jump drives. And over the course of the shoot, it, it'll go like that. And at some point, all that footage will, will be jumped to a G drive that will then become the project drive, at least the first of two project drives. And so the, what the process looks like is this slow duplication three different times of the raw footage and of the raw audio. Um, by the time the film is locked, I'll then duplicate the project drive over to a second project drive and I'll start working on that second project drive. So what I'm doing is I'm creating a layer of redundancy, backing up my footage each time. And so by the time the film is done, there's multiple copies of all the raw footage on a multitude of different drives made by a multitude of different (laughs) manufacturers. And the reason I do this is because I don't trust technology and I don't trust manufacturing processes, especially since I don't know how these drives are made. I don't know what's inside them. I don't know what their lifespan is going to look like. And every drive is different. You might have two Lacey drives, same make and model made from the same factory, but one will die three years before this one, you know? And so I don't take any any of it for granted. And I don't delete any footage from the camera drives until the film is finalized and released for distribution. I have a lot of T-drives that go with my Blackmagic cameras for this reason. So it took me several years to make Fractals. Fractals, the Fractals T-drives that I shot on, those were only just erased last year when I submitted the movie through FilmHub. So that's how I back up and manage my footage over the course of a production and eventually wind down to two different drives. I have the project drive. And then I have the backup of all the raw footage on the external Lacie drive. So, And all the audio also goes up to the cloud because the audio is much smaller in file size that I can easily just back that up to the cloud during the course of production. As far as cybersecurity goes, uh, the first time I ever heard about cybersecurity with footage was with that movie W. It was an Oliver Stone movie, and he was really concerned about the CIA hacking into his editing system and completely deleting his footage or his project files. And ever since then, I kind of followed this rule where my editing system doesn't connect to the internet unless I'm updating my OS or uploading videos for one reason or the other. When I use the internet, I use a non-editing computer like my phone, uh, just because, it's safer that way. I mean, if you think about it, this is my livelihood. I've spent my entire adulthood generating all of this content, and I want to make sure I keep it safe. All the archival drives that I keep all of my my back catalog on, those are obviously duplicated a multitude of times, but those are never connected to a computer that's connected to the internet unless there's a reason for it. And... Ultimately, though, it's really just about making sure that my footage is constantly upgraded to the latest piece of technology, to the latest codec, if I have to upgrade the codec. Although ever since Apple ProRes came out, I haven't had to upgrade the codec. But before I I had to do that, Like, codecs were very indecisive uh, back in the day. But ever since ProRes came out, Uh, Everything has been in ProRes Which is great And I hope that they don't change that Um, All my masters are in ProRes So that's about it Back up your footage a lot Especially during the course of production And then slowly wind it down So that you have a reasonable amount of backups Once the film is done And as far as internet goes As far as being hacked goes Only connect it to the internet when you need to If you don't need to connect it to the internet, why? I mean, that's what they teach in defensive driving. Like the first rule of of defensive driving is if you don't need to drive somewhere, don't drive. You're less likely to get into a car accident if you're not using a car. So tip number 18, learn to go at your own pace. Remember, you're creating an art practice for yourself. This is about being happy. Don't think that you need to rush. Don't think you need to meet a certain timeline. And if you ignore my tip about the film festival and you're going after a film festival, if they open up the, late, the, the final deadline, but you're still in the early stages of post-production, don't rush to make that last deadline. It's not worth it, I promise you. Go at your own pace, enjoy and trust the process. And remember, the quality of your film matters more than how fast you get it out there. Tip number 19, you are your own advocate. So remember that the world has a hostility towards self-promotion and will criticize you for it. But ultimately, you are going to be your only advocate when it comes to promoting your movie and reminding people about why your movie is important and how important that movie was to you or is to you. And you should not feel bad about that. That's your job as an artist is to tell the story about why this art is important. And sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's in the work, but sometimes you're going to have to use marketing mechanisms in order to do that. Don't feel bad. Nobody else is going to promote it for you. So become an expert at promoting it yourself and enjoy that aspect of it. It's part of the process. It's part of the art life. Tip number 20. This is the final for this particular episode. And it's sort of a combination of everything in some form or another. You know, making films can be stressful. So tip number 20 is try to find a way to not stress out and to create a process that is enjoyable for you. Even if you're creating a complicated work, it doesn't mean the production process has to be complicated. Even though you're making a stressful film, it doesn't mean that making the film has to be stressful. So just find a way to enjoy the process. That's what it's all about. It's all about being on set with your collaborators. It's all all about learning about how something can work in this medium. It's all about sitting in the editing room and playing around with the timelines and the footage and, and all the audio files and just having fun. Have fun with it. Remember, this is the art life. So in addition to trusting the process, being unapologetic about it, you just have to be stress-free about it. Otherwise, what's the point? What are you even doing it for? Because if, if you're going to be stressed out doing the work, wouldn't it be better to be stressed out working in some cubicle or some office where income is guaranteed and you don't have to worry about whether or not something works? You're getting paid and that's that. Screw that, man. This is not why you do it. Why you do it is is to find a process that fits into your art life to find it to find and establish a practice of creativity that works for you so that you can build out all of these projects that you want to do all of these great pa- passion projects that I can't wait to see as a, a connoisseur of cinema so have fun out there keep these tips in mind take some of them with a grain of salt if you have to and reach out to me when you finished your movie and i'll maybe i'll have you on the podcast uh, and we can talk about your experiences making your movie thanks everybody and i'll see you on the next episode Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you have a moment, please consider subscribing to the show wherever you listen. And if the app allows for it, please leave a rating and review. That way, the algorithm moves us up in recommendations. It's a great way for new listeners to find our show. Thanks, and I'll see you on the next episode.